What's going on, everybody? Jared Sandler here, welcoming you in to another episode of the Just the Sec Conversation. This is episode 59 with the head coach of the Texas Legends, the NBA G League affiliate of the Dallas Mavericks, George Galanopoulos. I met George a few years ago when I was broadcasting Legends games on Fox Sports Southwest when George was simply an assistant coach for then-head coach Bob McKinnon. George was in that role for a year. He then went to work in the video room for the Dallas Mavericks and then at a young age got the chance to lead the Texas Legends and was likely leading them towards a postseason berth before COVID shut down the season. George is someone who's really busted his tail. He's led the Ugandan national team in some international tournaments. So we, we discussed that experience and more. He is someone whose name you will want to remember uh, is a, a future coaching star uh, in the, the NBA ranks. Uh, but the legends are, are certainly uh, lucky and, and thankful to have him right now. As always, we'd really appreciate it if you would consider subscribing, liking, uh, commenting, or just sharing this link uh, with people who you think might be interested in tuning into this conversation. But without further ado, here we go. Episode 59 of the Justice Set Conversation with the head coach of the Texas Legends, George Galanopoulos. All right, George, so I like to ask this uh, to everyone. What were you like? As a, as a child, what what was uh, what was young George like? You know, personality, interests, hobbies, whatever stands out to you. How would you describe what a young George Galanopoulos was like? Wow, um, I I got to go off what what my mom and my dad uh, like to talk about as far as how I was as a kid. Uh, relatively outgoing, at least for a young kid. Uh, loved sports, was was really, really competitive, almost to a fault, um, was was prone to the throwing a temper tantrum when I was younger. If I lost in a board game to my siblings or, you know, a driveway basketball game or something like that. So, yeah, outgoing, competitive, um, nice kid, I think, for the most part. Um, you know, my mom might have some, some mixed feelings about that, but uh, – <laughs> Yeah, I would say just outgoing, competitive, you know, love sports, love being around my siblings, you know, grew up with uh, older sister, younger brother. Um, so there was a, a lot of in-house uh, love-hate relationships going on there, for sure. And you grew up in the Chicago area, right? Yeah, Buffalo Grove, which is a suburb about 40 minutes north of the city. Okay, so uh, what drew you to sports when you were growing up? Uh, I mean, my dad loved, you know, played sports and watched sports growing up. You know, was a huge Chicago sports fan. So inherently, you know, we we grew up loving the the Cubs and and the Bears and the Bulls and um, you know the Blackhawks even. So my dad, from the time I was you know old enough to remember, was taking me to sporting events and uh, you know got got me a basketball hoop and threw it on the driveway when I was about five or six years old that I fell in love with uh, and just was playing sports from, you know, for as long as I can remember. So I think, I think it really stemmed from my dad, uh, you know, loving sports and, and just kind of getting us involved and getting us involved in a lot of different sports and just seeing kind of what stuck. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of what, what started my love for that. Was basketball a love at first sight type of thing for you? Uh, to a degree it was. Obviously at that age, you know, you don't really know what love at first sight is. But, um, you know, I remember, like I said, I was either five or six years old that, um, you know, for my birthday, my dad uh, put had somebody put a basketball hoop in 
uh, in our driveway, and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. You know, I, I was playing so much on it that he realized he had to uh, he had to install a light on our house that projected onto the driveway so that I could play at night because uh, I was playing so much when I was younger. So uh, I guess you could say to a degree it was love at first sight. You know, baseball was um, was a passion of mine as well growing up. You know, those were the two main sports that I played, but but basketball for sure. I mean, when he put that basketball hoop up, you know, for my birthday, it was. Uh, it was something that, you know, I, I fell in love with really early and, and never stopped. Did it help that you grew up in an area and in a time in which basketball was so big because of Michael Jordan and the Bulls? Did that help draw you any closer to the sport? Or, or what was your, I guess, experience like growing up as a Bulls fan as it pertained to your love of basketball? Yeah, it, it had a huge impact. You know, my my parents were huge Bulls fans. Obviously, you know, those championships in the 90s, I was still young, so I just have vague memories of the the second three-peat. But, you know, when I talked to my parents about it, they were watching Bulls games every every night that they were on. You know, my dad would come home from work, and my mom would have a glass of wine and, and have the Bulls on on a random Tuesday night in the middle of January. Like, they had such a huge impact on, you know, the culture and just the people of Chicago. And I grew up around that. You know, I grew up with a big Michael Jordan poster in my room and Scottie Pippen all over and jerseys and, and championship videos that they made and banners. Like, I was a huge Bulls fan from, from the moment I was born. And um, it was. There was a huge impact on that. And going to the games and, you know, even going to the games, I, I you know, my love grew for other players that I saw as well. You know, one of my first Bulls games, I saw Kevin Garnett play. Uh, and I, I fell in love with Kevin Garnett and Stephon Marbury when I was a, a little kid, you know, as well as the Bulls. So I just became a huge basketball fan, a huge NBA fan in particular, uh, growing up with the Bulls and, and going to games and just seeing what an impact that they had on, on people and not only the community of ours and Chicagoland area, but just the world in general. Sidebar, favorite deep dish spot? Oof. I'd probably have to go Lou Malnati's, but Giordano's is a close second. Okay. I just had to make sure I got that one in there. There, there really wasn't you – know, we're not getting into a deep pizza uh, conversation at any point, so I had to somehow it, throw that it's in one, there. It's, it's one of those, man. Like, if I go eat Giordano's right now, it's I'd probably pick Giordano's. And when I go pick Lou Malnati's, I, I think it's Lou Malnati's. So they're, they're right there. They're 1A and 1B. Uh, at, at what point, George, did you – decide or or maybe realize that coaching would be of interest to you uh was it something when you were growing up or was it not something until you were totally done playing yeah so i played i played for my high school my sophomore year and i didn't really get much playing time i was kind of like a, a seventh eighth man um, and then, you know, we were so guard heavy at that point, in our program went to school with a lot of kids and they, we had a really good team that I ended up not playing the next two years in high school for my high school, but I ended up playing a like playing a lot of pickup playing at the local, you know, YMCA. Um, I started playing a lot in like local park district leagues. I just started playing as much as possible because I still loved it. You know, I just didn't see as much of an opportunity for the high school team and I got a lot better. And when I got better just playing on my own those next couple of years, um, you know, I realized I didn't really have much of a future plan, or at least I didn't think so. But um, I, I really loved the game, obviously. And I, I got in touch with, um, you know, a guy by the name of Steve Pratt, who's still a longtime friend and mentor. He runs a, a basketball training AAU academy in Chicago, still called Full Package Athletics. And, and he gave me an opportunity um, to coach 
full package and just do like individual lessons with kids and whatnot and um, coach fifth and sixth grade AAU. And at first I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I absolutely loved it. You know, I loved the connection with the kids and helping players get better. And I really felt comfortable doing it. And I found my voice and, um, you know, a certain comfort level that, um, you know, I guess a lot of people say, you know, go find your passion. I was really passionate about it. And, you know, I'll never forget the first lesson that I gave to a individual lesson I gave to a young kid. I think he was, you know, maybe 11, 12 years old and he couldn't do a left-handed layup. Um, and I remember for 45 minutes with his parents watching, um, I worked on left-handed layups with him and he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. And I was just continuing to, you know, to be encouraging and, um, you know, he was getting super frustrated. And by the end of the 45 minutes, he was, he was able to, to get it down. He went off his right foot up with his left hand. He made it. And just the pure joy on this kid's face that he felt uh, from being able to work at it for 45 straight minutes and finally get it and you know, seeing the way his parents reacted as well. It was a really, really cool feeling. And I'll never forget that. That was the moment, I think, when, when I did that lesson and that was the result of it after the 45 minutes. I left that gym thinking to myself, I love this and this is something I could see myself doing. And then it kind of just had a domino effect from there where I was in love with the NBA at the time. And it was around that time that Lawrence Frank actually was, um, I think he, he came out of the scene with the Nets as like an interim head coach. And, you know, he doesn't necessarily look the part as a former NBA guy and whatnot. And, you know, I kind of did some research on him and saw that he didn't have a playing background. He was a manager at IU. He, you know, worked his way up from assistant coach in college to, you know, the NBA. And, um, you know, I, I, there was proof that somebody like me who didn't have a strong playing background could do this and could make it work and, you know, call me young and dumb or naive at the time. But, um, you know, after seeing that example, it, it to me, it was kind of like, well, well, why can't I do that? You know, I'll go be a manager at, you know, a school or I'll go be an intern. And um, it was around that time that it was Lawrence Frank. And then as the years went on, more and more guys like the Spolsters of the world, the Mike Browns, uh, the Frank Vogels, all these guys came up through the video room and as interns. Um, and then it really paved the way for, you know, a lot of people like myself uh, coming up in the industry. So what what was the, well, I guess, first of all, do you have a relationship with Lawrence Frank? How would you describe your relationship if you do have one with him? I I don't know Lawrence Frank personally. I, I've never met him. If I did meet him personally, I if it was appropriate timing, I would, I would let him know that, um, you know, he, he was an inspiration to me at the time, you know, just seeing that somebody without a playing background could, could work their way to that position. He just showed guys like me that it was possible. Um, and then it showed guys that, you know, came, came after him that it was possible as well. Um, so I don't personally have a relationship with him, but, you know, to me, he, he means a lot in the sense that I'll never forget seeing him on TV when I was in high school. Um, and I was trying to figure out myself how I would get into the coaching world. I knew I wanted to coach in the NBA when I was about 17 years old. I was coaching AAU. I didn't know how I would do it. And uh, he was kind of like the model, the example, um, where I looked at it and I said, oh, well, it, it's possible. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out and do my research on how these guys do it and figure out how to go from here. All right, so you go to Indiana. There's a, you know, obviously a, a, a pretty storied basketball program there. Uh, what was that next job once you were done with college? So once I was done with college, I ended up getting an internship at Attack Athletics, working for Tim Grover and Mike Procopio. And uh, it's, it's, it's no longer there, Attack, but 
Um, you know, they, they were training some, some high-profile pro- athletes at the time. And, you know, Tim Grover's obviously Michael Jordan's trainer, and, and Kobe Bryant worked with a lot of a lot of pros. So that was unbelievable learning under him and, and Mike Procopio. Obviously, Mike Procopio, you know, brought me to Dallas about you know, four or five years later, not to get too ahead of ourselves. But um, that was my first internship, and, and it was pretty cool because it was, you know, one of my first experiences working with professional athletes and, you know, seeing how those individual workouts go down in the summertime and, and understanding, you know, what it's like to work with those players. And they also did draft workouts, um, you know, weight room workouts. So there, there was, you know, it was an incredible learning experience for me as a youngster at 22 years old, just to be there for even a few months. Um, and then after that, I got a job as a basketball operations intern with the Bakersfield jam who are now the Northern Arizona Suns. Uh, so they were, they were out of Bakersfield, California. I got an internship there. It was actually Steve Pratt, the guy I mentioned before, um, the longtime mentor and friend of mine that, that helped me with my first coaching job, uh, who helped get me that opportunity uh, with his buddy who coached, Will Voigt is the name of, uh, of Bakersfield. And so I went out there as a, an intern and then was there for the next three years as a player development coach and then an assistant coach uh, my final year. So how old were you that first year with Bakersfield? I was 22. Okay. I had just graduated college that that previous uh, that previous spring. So how did you? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I guess that that first year, what were your responsibilities and and how did your responsibilities evolve over those three years? Yeah, so my responsibilities at first are similar to what basketball ops interns do now. I I was doing everything from, you know, running the clock at practice to you know, wiping up the sweat when players would fall down to cleaning the floor before practice, laundry, driving the team van. Um, I also was on, I was lucky enough to be on the bench uh, during the games, taking stats and and helping the coaching staff out, which was an incredible experience. Um, I'd help the coaching staff with any, any video edits that they needed, any, any scouting duties in particular to help them out. Um, it was, you wear a lot of different hats in that position. So really what, what catapulted me to, you know, a player development coach position the next year with them was when the team would go on the road, I wasn't traveling at the time. So we had a, uh, a player in particular, one or two players that, you know, if they were inactive or they were injured, they would stay back and they would work out. And I was one of the only people, you know, that didn't travel and was staying back. So it was my responsibility to work those guys out when the team was on the road. And I would also get in the gym with guys at night because we didn't have a player development coach, you know, and our assistant coaches were married, they had family. So I was the one that would go in at night and help these guys work out. So getting on the court with those guys individually, building those relationships, you know, reporting back to the coach, the workouts that they were doing. And, you know, I guess he thought I was doing a good enough job, saw some improvement in the guys and, and saw that I'd, I was building a good rapport with the players as well um, that they wanted to hire me back the next year. So, you know, some of the best advice that I got from uh, from Mike Procopio when I was working at Attack before I took this job as an intern was, you know, you can be the hardest worker. You can 
you can mop the floor. You could be willing to do any tasks that they give you and be really, really good at those things. But the way that you, uh, you know, catapult your career to where you want to go and where, how you get to the next job and how you get hired and get to the next step is by adding value to yourself. So those, that was some of the best advice I ever got, especially as a young kid um, coming up in this business was it's important to add value to yourself. It's important to show, um, you know, what, what you can do and what you can offer the team and the organization uh, that makes you valuable so that they would want to keep you there. And it was just an opportunity that organically presented itself that, you know, I was one of the only people staying back and not traveling and, uh, you know, decided to work out the players. And, and thankfully they saw some value in me uh, in doing that because they didn't have that position of somebody to just really get in the gym, um, you know, any time of the day or night and, and help out. So uh, that, that was a great opportunity for me, for sure. How did you overcome age at that stage and without necessarily a resume or skins on the wall develop the trust of these players and and you know prove to them that not only are you you know their age or maybe in a lot of cases younger and you don't have coaching skins on the wall but you don't have playing skins on the wall so how did you overcome that and you know not not to yourself I mean I I, I think that you had already kind of proven to yourself with you know the examples that you share that you were capable of doing it, but you also need to get the players to buy in. How did you go about that? And, and was that a challenge or did that, was that something that just kind of happened naturally? Yeah, it's, uh, it was, it, it's somewhat of a challenge, but I, I didn't really, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really look at it that way. I just, I loved coaching so much and I loved being on the court and I loved the game so much that I, I didn't, I didn't approach it as, you know, how am I going to earn their respect? this is going to be really, really difficult. Like how am I going to go about getting the respect of these guys and, and show them what I know. And it, I didn't stress about that really because I enjoyed it so much. I just made myself available to these guys whenever they wanted to get in the gym. And I felt at the time I worked really hard just to, just to help these guys. You know, I, when I would rebound for them, I'd make sure that I was sprinting for rebounds and trying to get them as many shots as possible. I would, I would make game-like passes. I just really, to myself, broke it down to, I'm just going to work really hard. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to try to do the right things. And I'm just going to show these guys that I'm there for them. And, and I think that over time, you know, you, you, add, you add the learning, you know, the constant learning of the game and different nuances and terminology. And you add a lot of that to, you know, a work ethic um, and an outlook on things. And, and usually the sky's the limit. You know, in my opinion, that, that's what I've seen work over the years. And I've been really lucky to have really good mentors. You know, Will Voigt was a great coach over there in Bakersfield, currently uh, you know, coaching in Germany and uh, the Angolan national team head coach. And he helped me a lot. You know, he helped mentor me a lot and teach me uh, not only the nuances of the game, but, you know, how to be a pro, um, you know, how to approach your job in a professional manner. So um, it, it was good. But, you know, my approach was just just – be a good guy, do things for the right reasons. When guys call you answer, if, if they want to get in the gym, get in the gym with them, you know, help them out, you know, bust your ass and just do, do the best you can. And I, I think the players, no matter who they are, I think respect that they respect when you're available and when you're there for them and, and they can trust you. And, and that's all I, that's all I did. I just tried to be myself and I think the byproduct was just good relationships and building trust. And then over time it, it became more clear to me, as to uh, how to earn that respect 
you know, so that I can pass that along to other coaches and, and other generations. All right, so you and I met George when you were working with the Texas Legends, and then uh, you had, I guess, two jobs maybe concurrently to some degree uh, after that. Uh, one working with the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, we'll get into that in a second, but uh, you also you mentioned uh, Will Voigt coaching the Angolan national team. Well, you coached the Ugandan national team, and... Uh, as far as I knew then, and, and still to this day, as far as I know, you are not any percentage Ugandan. Maybe maybe now you are after this experience, but how did that all come about, and what was that experience like from uh, the opportunity to be a head coach to the challenges of coaching uh, in a country where you know nothing about the, the culture, the way of life, and it's also not a country with a, a rich basketball history? Yeah, it was it was a challenge for sure, in a, in a lot more ways than than I even anticipated. You know, it was actually uh, it was Bob McKinnon, you know, the old coach for Legends, when I was an assistant, um, who helped me get that job. You know, they had reached out to him, uh, you know, management for the Uganda Basketball Federation. They had uh, you know reached out to him to coach, and I think he was getting hit surgery that summer. He couldn't do it, and um, he he told them, you know, I, I got an assistant coach that. I think would be you know capable of doing it, and thankfully he saw that in me to be able to do it. I'm really grateful for that to this day. And um, you know when he came to me with that and said, "Is this something you would want to do?" I, I didn't know much about Uganda at all. I didn't know where in Africa it was. I just knew it was a country in Africa. And just at that time, being young, single, able to travel wherever you wanted um, for this job, I just said, "Yeah, sure. You know why not?" Um, so I went out there, and and it was. It was tough. It's a challenge. I mean, our first training camp was in um, Alexandria, Egypt. And, you know, the drive from Cairo to Alexandria, we're driving on this this little bus, me and two players that traveled from the States uh, that were part Ugandan. And we get on this bus, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, at the time was about to break down on the side of the road. And, uh, you know, it's super hot. There's barely any air conditioning in the car. And we're driving for three and a half hours from Alexandria to Cairo. And uh, or from Cairo to Alexandria, and the first gym that we go to where we have training camp is in the middle of Alexandria somewhere. I still to this day never know where it was. Um, it was the worst <laughs> gym I've ever been in in my entire life. Like there was, it was broken windows. There were no lights. the uh, The floor was wood, but it was like all cracked and beat up, and tiles were pulled up, and there was so much dust and sand on the floor that we were trying to do. Uh, defensive pick and roll shell drill with these guys sliding and uh you know shifting all over the place and guys were slipping everywhere and i'm just thinking to myself at that time like how the hell are we gonna win any games like how are we gonna do this but it was it just was what it was it was a situation you know we tried to adapt uh you know we did the best we could and you know one thing i took for granted too was the language barrier so they speak they speak a number of languages there's a lot of tribes over there there's also the native ugandan language but they do speak English. It is a secondary language of theirs. And the thing I took for granted was that they'd be able to understand everything I said just because I speak English. But, um, you know, I, I can speak relatively fast sometimes when I get going, when I'm coaching. And they we have different terminology, basketball-wise. You know, one guy didn't even know what crash the boards meant. You know, that's a general term here in America. But, you know, I had to explain that it was offensive rebounding. And I'm thinking to myself, if he didn't understand crash the boards, how many of these guys don't understand if I – use some terminology that that i'm so used to using the states so that was a real big challenge and it's not you know 
I need to educate these guys. Like it's just different. It's different cultures. It's, it's different basketball cultures, different basketball terminology. Um, so it, it took me, um, really self-reflecting and taking a step back. And instead of just showing them how much I know coming from the States and coming from the level that I was coaching at, it was really taking a step back and working with them, uh, working with them to come up with the best solutions um, to these, not necessarily problems, but just solutions to these issues, um, you know, communication wise and, and how we were going to best work together to make this thing work. And it, it helped me personally tremendously. I mean, those guys opened my eyes to, to so many blind spots that I had as a coach and it just made my communication that much better. It made me appreciate that culture a lot more. Um, you know, I, it, it offered me an opportunity to travel not only all over Africa, all over the world. You know, we, I, I had the opportunity to go to Dubai for a few days. Uh, we were in Senegal, Nigeria, um, you know, been to Uganda before and also, you know, Alexandria, Egypt, Cairo, um, you know, it, it offered an unbelievable opportunity to see the world that I never would have anticipated. You know, when I was 17, 18 years old, I just figured, oh, I'll follow Lawrence Frank's path, you know, just go straight, straight from the bottom up, you know, through the college and, and NBA ranks. And it's really been a blessing. It has for sure. Um, and you know, the, the amount of people that you meet across different cultures throughout the world is something that's, that's really, really cool. And it's gratifying as long as you have, you know, the right, the right outlook going into it. What a... Uh... What was your not not basketball related? What was your because I know next to nothing about Uganda. What was your favorite part of Ugandan culture or something that you got to experience while you were in Uganda? They're really really nice people. That that's one thing that I really appreciate about them is that when I got the opportunity, you know, obviously I, the team was very nice and I I met them, but I I got an opportunity finally to go to Uganda. Um, you know, a couple of years after I'd gotten the job, you know, cause we were doing training camp and playing our games in, in other places and other remote places besides Uganda. So the moment that I got to go to Uganda, uh, I really, really appreciated just the people there. They were super nice. They were welcoming. Uh, you know, the food is great. Uh, it's just a very, very fun culture. They got great music. They like to have fun. Um, there's, there's really not many better things that I could say about the people there. And that's the one thing that I remember about my experience is that when I got to go to Uganda, they were just very, very appreciative, very welcoming, very warm. And it's, it's something that I appreciate to this day. I've had a great time when I've gone back there and I, I look forward once all of this stuff, you know, plays out hopefully for the better that I'll be able to fly over there and, and see everybody again. All right. So you, you also around the same time were working with the Mavericks. Now, the, the Texas Legends, when you first worked as an assistant coach, were connected to the Mavericks, but Mark Cuban was not involved from an ownership standpoint like he is now. And I think the, the connection between the Legends and the Mavericks, though it existed then, uh, is much stronger now. But uh, you, you went from the Legends then to the Mavericks. What was your role and, and your responsibilities, and uh, what did you kind of get out of uh, what you did with the Mavericks? Yeah, the, Ma the Mavericks was a great opportunity. You know, it, it just kind of happened organically where there was a spot open in the video room and, you know, it was a full-time spot. Uh, I had not worked for an NBA team full-time at that point. And, um, you know, thankfully from, from my internship year there in 2015-16, I still had maintained some relationships and, um, you know, they, they wanted to retain me in, in that role in the video room. And uh, it's something that I'm, I'm really grateful for. It was an unbelievable opportunity. 
Uh, I was able to cultivate a, a lot of strong relationships with the coaches there over a span of two years. And uh, it was an unbelievable learning experience. I mean, to be in an NBA office every single day, you know, being involved in, in those conversations and, and different projects and, and watching video and film and breaking it down with the coaches, um, it, it was incredible. And, you know, where I think what I think prepared me most for that position specifically is not necessarily the video aspect nearly as much as, as the approach and, and the attitude in it. So, you know, as an assistant video coordinator previously, I was, you know, I'd been an intern for the Mavs. I'd been a coach. I'd been an assistant coach for, for three years at that time, two with Bakersfield and then one with the legends. So I had a good understanding. I felt at that time of, what an assistant coach would want in preparation for each and every game and each and every practice. And instead of taking that position and thinking, oh, well, I'm above this because I've been a coach, so I'm just going to try to find a way to get to be a coach from this position, um, I just took it as, hey, I've, I've had really, really great experiences, and I've been lucky enough to have those early on in my career of being a coach and having more responsibility that now I'm in more of a support role and – you know, I got, I got to look to help these guys. You know, what would I want as an assistant coach? What did I learn about the things that helped me as an assistant coach in previous years that I can now pass on and help this coaching staff? And it's on a different scale. You know, the NBA obviously is, is of higher magnitude than, than the G League, especially uh, at the time of Bakersfield. But it was similar concepts nonetheless of, you know, I, I knew I just tried to look at what the assistant coach needed um, on a day-to-day basis and what I could take off his plate. And, and that's just the way that you know, I operated while I was there and the experiences I had before, that is what I think primed me for, for that position. George, you, you mentioned the video room. You know, I, I know what that is. Obviously you do, but for people who, who might not, when you say you worked in the video room, what all does that entail? Anything involved with the day-to-day video needs of the staff, the team and, and the organization, you know, uh, during the season, it's, it's a lot of video edits for individual coaches, whether they have the scout for, um, for that upcoming game, whether they're watching film with a player, you know, a coach could walk in and say, Hey, could I have, could I have Jalen's Jalen Brunson's last 10 pick and rolls? And, you know, it's, that's my job to go in as long as they ask and, and find them for them and clip them up and, uh, you know, make sure that I give something to him that, that he can show, you know, to Jalen, you know, so they, they've got so much work as assistant coaches and they're so busy. Plus they all got families and whatnot. It's, it's a lot. So, you know, anything that we could do to take off their plate, you know, is, is really what our job is. So any day-to-day video needs, obviously in the off season, there's the draft. So we would do draft videos and put together film of, you know, the top prospects and, and everybody in the draft. So that's accessible to everybody in the organization. Um, you know, we would, we would call it chop, you know, quote unquote, cut up. We would cut up the video uh, for upcoming opponents as well. So, you know, if we were playing the Bulls on a Monday and we were going to play the Lakers on a Wednesday and the Lakers were playing that night that we played the Bulls, I'm not watching our game against the Bulls. I'm actually in the back in the video room cutting up the game that the Lakers just played so that once our game is over, everybody on the staff will be able to watch um, – the Lakers game in preparation for Wednesday's game in our video uh, software program. So there's a lot that's involved, but again, if, if I were to sum it up, it's just the day-to-day video needs of 
the team, the staff, and the organization. All right, so from there, you get the job of the Texas Legends. You just finished your first year as a head coach in the G League. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it seemed like you were leading a, a team to the playoffs, but that season was cut short because of uh, all the COVID-19 uh, impact in the sports world. But what was that first season for you like as a head coach here in the G League? It was nothing short of an incredible experience. Both, you know, for me personally, it, I couldn't have asked for a better situation. The people that we had in that building, from the staff, you know, to management, to the players that we had, we had really, really good people around every day. And, you know, a lot of people talk about culture. They talk about building, a, you know, the right environment and this, that, and the other. You, you could do that all you want, but it's, it, culture starts with people. And the people that we had in the building, you know, starting with Al Whitley and, and Malcolm Farmer and, you know, everybody with the Mavs, it, it's a trickle-down effect. And, you know, I just, this, the staff that we had, there was only one, one change on staff because uh, somebody, uh, you know, Zach Chu got a, got a job with the, with the Mavericks. So it was great for him to get the call up. And then a buddy of mine, Nelson Taroba, gets hired. And uh, there were no other changes. Everybody that was there that, you know, I either was familiar with, I had worked with or knew was just a great person. You know, they were good people. It was, it was loyalty and integrity and helping the players over, over personal ambition. And that's something that you really appreciate as a coach. Let's just do the right things. Let's, let's have the best interests of the players at heart. And let's bring in really, really good people uh, that, are, that were the players. And, you know, the talent and the wins and everything else will kind of take care of itself. And that's what you saw. You know, the, the result as, as a 24-19 record, I think, was just an example of the people that we had in the building. And what a great job, you know, our management did of bringing in the right players and, um, and the players, you know, gelling and having really, really good chemistry and being a really cohesive unit throughout the year, which is so much more than you could ask for with a G League team with so much roster movement. So, you know, I learned a lot personally, obviously, but the thing that I can appreciate most is just the relationships that, you know, got to build with everybody and, and kind of the, the joyful environment that we had every day, even after losses. Um, even after bad losses or a two, three game winning streak, um, it, the spirit of the team, I don't think ever wavered. And I think that's really a true testament to, um, you know, the chemistry that, that our guys had and, and the strength of, uh, you know, our, our assistant coaches and the rest of the staff as well. So you mentioned earlier assessing your performance and as a player, there's statistics that can help tell a big part of the story as a coach. How do you go back and assess your job uh, over the course of a season, what what methods do you use, and and what are the takeaways that you you tend to look for? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's really important as a coach that you have a high level of self awareness. So, you know, you, you could be twenty five and five, you know, thirty games in, and if you just think that the way that you're coaching reflects the twenty five and five record, or vice versa, that's wrong. You know, there, there are so many things that, that go on in huddles, in timeouts, in practices that uh, you, you need to constantly be self-evaluating. And, and I, there were a lot of times where we'd leave a timeout or something like that, and I thought to myself, man, I, I should have been better at that. Like, that wasn't my best effort. Or, you know, I, I need to be more prepared for that next time, or I need to be more prepared for this. You watch film of, of the games that you won and lost. You watch special situations and the quarters. You, you reflect on all of these things that happen. And I think it takes a high level of self-awareness to look at those things objectively and try to figure out where you could be better regardless of the result. Um, you know, for me, judging the job that 
that I did and, and the staff, I think first and foremost is looking at, did we help the players get better? You know, did we create an environment that was conducive to learning and developing? And did these guys get better? Um, and I think we could look at a lot of guys, you know, almost all of our guys and say, yeah, th- these guys got better over the span of the year. And, and that's what we care about. We care about approaching our job with a, a genuine care, with integrity, with the best interests of the players at heart, first and foremost. And with all the roster turno- turnover that happens, you just have to navigate that. You have to navigate that as a staff. You need to navigate that with the core group of players that you have there throughout the year. And at the end of the day, the, the result is, is the record. And I don't think, in, especially in the G League, the, the record is always a direct reflection of what went on. Um, but I, I think our, our record could say that we had the players in place that they created an environment. And our staff, I think, did a nice job on a day-to-day basis of bringing a positive energy to that environment uh, that created one that was conducive to learning and getting better and wanting to get better. And at the end of the year, you know, the, the, the results were what they were. But I see, I see it as a successful year because not only guys got better, not just because we won, but we enjoyed it. And I think we enjoyed it regardless of the record. Winning helps, but I also like to think that we manifested a lot of those wins because of, of our approach and the guys that we had in that locker room. Well, there you go. That's episode 59 of the Just a Set Conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, again, feel free to browse the channel to uh, take a peek at the other 58 conversations we've released and uh, certainly be on the lookout for the next batch of conversations. We've got a whole lot more coming your way uh, in the Just a Set series, uh, as well as other videos and pieces of content on this channel. We'd really appreciate it if you'd consider subscribing, liking, commenting, sharing. Uh, Any and all of the above uh, would certainly be appreciated. Uh, But until then, stay safe, be healthy. We'll talk to you later.